Entropy's State of the Fake report reveals the magnitude of the global counterfeit problem. Big banks unite to create a mobile wallet to compete with big tech, and Instacart's IPO debuts today on the NASDAQ. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Today, Entropy, a product verification platform for businesses and governments, releases its annual State of the Fake report, which provides an overview of the global illegitimate and counterfeit product market. Here's some quick highlights from the report. In 2020, illegitimate imports cost the United States over $100 billion in retail sales, wages and benefits, and tax revenue losses. 72,000 children die a year from pneumonia due to counterfeit antibiotics, and fake anti-malarial medicine leads to the death of over 116,000 people. Counterfeiting is a more profitable industry for organized crime than even drug or human trafficking. For a deeper look into the report, I spoke with the CEO of Entropy, the product verification platform that created the State of the Fake report. Here's Vidut Srinivasan. Hi, my name is Vidut Srinivasan. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Entropy. Vidut, the report reveals that in 2020, illegitimate imports cost the U.S. economy $54 billion in retail sales, $33.6 billion in lost wages and benefits, and $13.5 billion in tax revenue. With costs up to $100 billion for the country, what is the U.S. doing to crack down on illegitimate imports? <laughs> as much as it can, and it's not nearly enough. So on average, um, you know, one of the stats that wasn't in this report, but it's something that you would hear uh, a lot of people in the logistics space talk about, is when, uh, when items come through customs from outside the country, roughly somewhere between an average of maybe 0.5% to a max of about 2% of all the goods that come in are actually checked. So what about the remaining 98% of the goods that come in? Um, it's impossible. How are you going to check every single thing that comes in? So it's not so much on just the government. It's you need so many different allies in this place at every single node in every supply chain. You need some kind of verification process, which isn't easy. Right? That's like saying, hey, we need to fight crime by, by everyone being good people. Uh, so it's, it's not a problem that is in, intractable, but it's not solvable either. Operation Fakes are in Europe to help fight against counterfeit apparel, footwear, and accessories. The operation found that the lost revenue led to a direct loss of employment in more than 260,000 employees. What other ways do counterfeit goods affect retailers, employees, and consumers? I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. Uh, let me give you a quick anecdotal example, right? Most of the fakes that we get, we get them from out of the country, and they're made in some of the richest countries and some of the poorest countries all over the place. So the, it runs a, a wide spectrum in terms of quality, supply chains, uh, or, uh, you know, country of origin, uh, and the kind of brands and, and the price points. But how it affects us to start with, we tested 100% of all of our fakes that we had at, you know, we were at an event and somebody had an XRF machine and we ran all of our fakes through the machines. And what we got was 100% of all of those inventory, all of that inventory had lead and cadmium paint on the handles. So people who were buying fakes were actually causing massive health problems for themselves. So that's one, right? And then of course you have social problems. There's jobs lost, there's internal, state, local, and national uh, tax revenues lost. Retail sales, uh, that's a, that's an opportunity cost, but it's still lost massively. And then uh, you, of course, don't know where they're made, how they're made, who's making them. And in most cases, they're made 
you know, they're made by shady elements who are anti-social, anti-commerce, uh, uh, legitimate commerce. And in many cases, it's child labor. And they also support, there, there is documented evidence that they support terrorism activities. Wow, that's crazy. It was also reported that 52% of the Gen Z generation has purchased a counterfeit item within the last year, with 37% doing so intentionally. 21% intentionally pirated entertainment content within the last year as well. What are these numbers compared to other generations, if you know? And why do you think Gen Z generation is more drawn to counterfeits than maybe others before them? Um, why is it just more information, uh, but not the right kind of information, meaning there's information, but there's not education and awareness. Right. People don't know that these things are actually harming them and harming those around them. Uh, so a lot of it is just ignorance. So and, and nobody really wants to talk about it, because, like I said early on, brands have their own agenda. No brand would ever talk about, hey, this is our problem. We don't know how to really solve it. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is I think it is becoming more acceptable also because of the quality of counterfeits have gotten so much better. So a lot of people in a, in a twisted, perverted way feel like, hey, I'm getting similar quality for 30% of the price. So look, I'm going to flaunt that and show that off to my people. That is also leading to more acceptance without realizing, of course, the consequences of it. Last question, Vaduth. What's a key takeaway from the report maybe that most people aren't aware of about counterfeit goods? I think the, the key thing that I believe most people should understand is... When you're buying anything that's a high value luxury product or a coveted collectible or even a pair of sneakers online or even offline, you should ask for a certificate. You should find out if it has been checked by third parties and that should be verifiable because most third parties, most businesses try to keep their business legitimate. So they add as many protection layers as possible, right? So you can't fault the business if something caught through. That's where you need a third party certifier to authorize that. And also make sure that it should work like insurance. You should have absolutely 100% trust in what you're buying, where this shouldn't even be a question. If you don't have 100% trust, either don't buy it or ask for certification. That was Vaduth Srinivasan, co-founder and CEO of Entropy. Loved having you on, Vaduth. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. At least that's how big rival banks seem to feel as they unite to take on a shared foe, big tech. Banks such as J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and others plan to launch a digital wallet to rival Apple and Google's offerings. Paze, spelled P-A-Z-E, is a new fintech platform and mobile wallet that the banks have collaborated to create to serve over 150 million Americans who use their services. The wallet will be connected to debit and credit card accounts. It will be run by Early Warning Services, a bank consortium that also runs Zelle, the popular digital payments network. In an effort to retain current customers from joining Google and Apple, and most recently Elon Musk's Everything App X for financial services needs, banks are committing more resources into partnerships with fintech platforms. According to a study from Payments.com, 65% of banks and credit unions have formed at least one partnership with the fintech company within the last three years. Big tech has disrupted the financial services and consumer banking sector. Apple's tap-to-pay app Apple Pay already accounts for 6% of all global purchases. In the last five years, the app has seen an increase in users from 60 million to over 500 million. Accenture's head of banking, Michael Abbott, says the payments are a, quote, $40 trillion experience. If you sit in front of that experience, you can monetize that experience. And big tech has. In an effort to catch back up, banks are relying on pays to recover some of their long-held financial services dominance. 
To learn more about Pays and the bank's rivalry against big tech, I spoke with Chucky Reddy. This is Chucky Reddy. I'm a partner at QED Investors. QED Investors exclusively invest in fintech specialists. Chucky, can you set the stage for us? How has big tech infiltrated the traditional banking world over the last several years? Yeah, big tech has been pretty influential in financial services over the course of my career, which is even incremental to the last several years. You know, it first started with, um, you know, our time at Capital One, where, you know, a lot of the interesting technologies around databases and uh, big data in general was a big part of the thesis and why Capital One was able to inflect out. So those were kind of the early days. Obviously, we, we fast forward today and you even see what you have in your uh, regular way of banking apps where you can just take a picture of the check. Um, that check actually gets deposited pretty instantaneously at the major banks, particularly with some of the new um, payment rails and technologies that have come out. And you uh, can go all the way to being able to send money uh, relatively instantaneously now uh, with respect to going from bank to bank in some of the banking apps. So there's been fairly um, substantive movement with respect to what banks are able to do and the services they're able to provide. Uh, there's still a, lot, a long way to go, and that's exactly why QED is investing in um, you know, a number of fintech companies that are you know, trying to make the customer service experience a lot better, uh, take friction out of the banking system, and really improve uh, from here uh, to a much better place. J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and others plan to launch Pays, the mobile wallet that will connect directly to the credit card and debit card accounts of 150 million plus customers sometime next year in an effort to stop tech companies like Apple, Google, and most recently X from poaching their customers. What kind of impact do you think a platform like Pays will have on the consumer banking industry? You know, the the wallet piece of this has been moving forward quite a bit, and there's been a tremendous amount of adoption. You can see it in the numbers in particular for Apple. I think given that it's such a large part of their revenue share to have an interchange from credit and debit, having control over that ecosystem is really important in the revenue stream. And to the extent that Apple can intermediate it and then eventually go one-to-one is something that is a threat um, and could potentially take away that revenue stream. And Apple could have a lot more pricing power going forward, as an example. And so being able to control that experience um, is something that would be, you know, could be quite interesting. Obviously, uh, they did the same from a consortium play with respect to Zelle several years ago as they saw PayPal and Venmo and other incumbents coming in um, or making real strides in peer-to-peer payments. That was an effort to uh, offer that service to their customers and they didn't have to go outside of the ecosystem of the bank. Michelle Alt, a banking consultant, said, quote, Regulators want banks to know who their customers are, and that becomes a lot harder when you're working through a fintech. Why is it important that banks know who their customers are, and why would working through a fintech like Pays make that process more difficult? Well, the government largely uses the banks to uh, control, obviously, where the money is going and knowing where that money is going. Um, so there is a, uh, it's really, the government uses the banks as an enforcement mechanism more than anything else. Um, so the banks take on that task, even though that's maybe not something they want to be doing per se, um, because they have direct privity with the, with the regulators. When it leaves the, the regulated ecosystem, it's much harder to track dollars. You know, I think there's obviously been people talking about crypto is one of the arenas where that could happen. Um, you've probably seen some of the articles around people not paying taxes that are self-employed individuals getting paid on uh, some of the other fintech platforms. Um, and the government has tried to crack down, particularly on the tax piece, but also on the uh, know your customer uh, piece as well, so that they could try to 
get their arms around where all the dollars are flying. Last question, Chucky. If Pace becomes a success, how do you think it will affect big tech players like Apple and Google? I think it is offering an alternative to customers that want to stay within that bank ecosystem, as I said earlier. And so to that extent, for people that are less comfortable going to other providers and providing payment information into third-party applications, obviously adding your credit card into your Apple wallet is introducing that particular credit card number into that ecosystem. Um, Those are the types of things that um, some people may just be less comfortable with, even though uh, that uses a fairly secure technology to make sure that there isn't like a credential sharing that could be um, as easily hacked. Um, this is like this is a way for people to feel more comfortable that they're within their own ecosystem of their own bank. That was Chucky Reddy, partner at QED Investors. Thanks so much, Chucky. Glad to be here. Instacart, one of the year's most anticipated IPOs, has priced its stock at $30. This is welcome news to the venture-backed startup industry, eyeing public markets as $30 is the very top of Instacart's expected range. However, this price only values the company at $10 billion, a fourth of what the delivery service startup was valued at two years ago after its last round of private funding. We actually covered this story last week when Instacart announced its expected IPO range. So if you're interested in learning more about why the valuation has dropped so much over the last two years, along with some expert insight from billionaire Tim Draper, check out last Tuesday's episode. At its $10 billion valuation, Instacart will be valued at 3.5 times annual revenue. DoorDash, one of Instacart's competitors, currently trades at 4.25 times revenue. Uber, which runs Uber Eats, another Instacart competitor, trades for less than three times revenue. Instacart's IPO will debut this morning on the NASDAQ under the ticker symbol CART. It's the first notable venture-backed tech startup to IPO since 2021 and will be watched closely across the venture world today, especially by Klaviyo, another venture-backed startup likely to price its IPO later sometime this week. If Instacart pops similar to ARM's 25% opening day surge last week, the long-awaited IPO flood may just be set to flow. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.